Welcome to the Time Out Podcast with Tony McGettigan. Because we all need a little time out from life. Hello and welcome to episode 47 of the Time Out Podcast with me, Tony McGettigan. And I'm pleased to say today's guest is snooker related and no better time to cover snooker as we're entering the closing stages of the 2021 Betfred World Snooker Championship. My guest today is a current professional himself. He's won two ranking tournaments in his time so far. He turned pro in 92, a very famous year in snooker terms as the likes of O'Sullivan, Williams, John Higgins turned pro that year also. My guest today is a commentator with Eurosport uh, currently and he's known for being one of the more flamboyant players on the circuit with his uh, hairstyle and his dress sense. So it gives me great pleasure to uh, introduce Dominic Dale onto the podcast. Dominic, you're very welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Nice to to be doing the podcast. Thank you. Yeah, lovely to speak to you, Dominic. And of course, uh, we're down to the last four in the World Snooker Championship and... Things are getting very interesting, should we say? Yes, they are. Um, the, the players that are left in it now, they're just great players. They're very consistent players and they've got a complete all-round game. And some of the standard of play has just been absolutely fantastic. It's very humbling for me as a commentator. It is. It must be, it must be fantastic to see, um, you know, Dominic, when you see the, the level of, I think now with the, the amount of money that's involved as well now too, you see in snooker, that's all added, I think, to the... The competitiveness, a lot of players are taking this probably a lot more serious than they were years ago, Dominic. Absolutely. And the other difference is there are so many competitions these days. If you lose in one, the next tournament's just around the corner. So the difference now, you go back sort of 10 or 15 years, you only had sort of nine or 10 tournaments per season. So every tournament, there was a sort of a month gap between each one sometimes. And the difference is now there are so many competitions. Every time you go to a competition, you match sharp and you've played some great players all the time. So it's just you're almost going from one tournament to another now. And we're very lucky in this lockdown period that we've still got so many competitions. A lot of them, most of them are in Milton Keynes these days. But, um, you know, we're still playing snooker. And, you know, when, when so many sports have been struggling um, to actually have tournaments held like golf was massively affected football so many tournaments obviously it's been difficult without the crowds um, but you know in the world championships here now it's been a bit of a pilot event Uh, we're allowing crowds back in and come the final now in a couple of days time uh, we'll be at full capacity which will be amazing oh that is an amazing thought yeah Dominic you know to think the the crucible fall because as special as it is to play in the crucible theatre as as special as it must be uh, without a crowd it it must be half as enjoyable Definitely. You know, I mean, Kyron lost in the final last year to, to Ronnie. I was just thinking, you know, if Kyron had won the World Championships for the first time, he might never have won it again. And it would have been just such a, a sadness for him to, if he had have won it, you know, to have done it in, in, in an empty arena. You know, Crucible Theatre in Sheffield is just so synonymous for the atmosphere. You look down upon the audience, are right up to the ceiling almost, and the, 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 the snooker table's right down and everybody's right on top of you. But to not have an audience there, it loses so much. But, you know, it's great. We've already got, you know, two-thirds full pretty much now. And there's big crowds watching. And they're so enthusiastic this year in particular because they've been starved of snooker for a year. That's right. They're actually able to go now to an event, which is, uh, I think, people 
Not that anyone ever is supposed to get for granted. I suppose some of us did, but it's it's certainly a great bonus to for people to be back at at, at live events. And we'll t- we'll just take a talk about Mark Selby first of all, Dominic. And when it, when he came into form there, when he, when he got into the semi-finals from the quarter-finals, I must admit there was a part of me that thought it was almost uh, inevitable where this championship was going. He's that sort of player, Mark Selby. But uh, Stuart Bingham is right there with him. Yeah, he is. I've been commentating on most of this match. Mark Selby's been playing some fantastic snooker. He won his first match 10-1 against Kurt Maffin, who's been playing some good snooker this season. But then, you know, in the last round, uh, Mark Selby beat uh, Mark Williams 13-3 with a session to spare, which, I mean, nobody beats Mark Williams 13-3. But strangely enough, I was commentating on the first session of this. And for most of the match, Mark Selby's looked sort of very trepidant and he seems to have lost a fair bit of confidence. It's almost, it's really strange in the semi-final here in the one-table setup. He seems to be almost playing the occasion and he's been a little bit inhibited and Stewart's kept with him. I mean, uh, Mark Selby's highest break in the first session was just 46 and yet he ended the session four all with Stuart Bingham somehow, but you know, he starts, um, you know, the, the third session, he's nine, seven ahead. Mark Selby, so he's got a little bit of a cushion. He's, he's nearly halfway to his victory target at 17. I still put him favourite, Mark Selby, but Stuart Bingham's such a dangerous break builder, anything can happen there. Well, he's a very tenacious player, is Stuart Bingham, of course, former world champion too. But you know something, Dominic, what I felt about Selby last year, the feeling I have is that last year, of course, Ronnie O'Sullivan knocked him out. And I felt after that match that Selby almost felt hard done by in that game because if you remember, uh, Ronnie actually escaped from a snooker uh, sort of around the houses and it was sort of hit and hope um, it yeah. left, left Mark in a snooker and that effectively won Ronnie the match and I, I think Selby to me this year has really come in from the get go to, to prove a point I think so yeah he was he would have been hurt by that defeat last year you could tell it in his interview afterwards because he was controlling that match all the way up until he was 16-14 and uh, ahead and and and, Mark, and um, I've got to say, I mean, Ronnie just produced three frames that he hadn't produced a like of in the whole of the match. He just seemed to go for everything. It was like a last hurrah. I thought, okay, well, nothing's working. Uh, you know, I'm being outplayed by Mark Selby. I'll just go for a few and see what happens. Play to my strengths and hope to goodness they all go in and you know I can win three frames in a row. And that's in the end what happened. But he did play a few shots you know, that required a bit of good fortune and he seems to have it when it mattered. Definitely so. And there's no one better to watch uh, in, in, than Ronnie O'Sullivan when full flow. Dominic, I'm sure, like most people, will agree with that. And I, I remember those frames last year against Mark. Uh, it was just scintillating snooker. You know... It was. Yeah, absolutely. Ron is always a pleasure to play and commentate on because he's a commentator's dream because even when he's struggling... You know, the games go by fairly quickly and he, he takes his shots on. He's a beautiful purist. And, um, you know, I've spoken to Stephen Hendry about Ronnie and he, he'll say himself he's the greatest player that's ever played the game. You know, and if Stephen Hendry says that, you know, it's got to be right. Uh, well, I think Stephen's always been very, you know, honest and forthright in that opinion about Ronnie. Yeah. He definitely is the most talented player to, to ever pick a queue up and for many, the greatest as well. Just to touch uh, more on Mark Williams there, Dominic, um, about this thing that's been causing a bit of a debate is the break-off. Now, I must admit, when I saw it first, I found it very odd 
that someone that's playing snooker as long as uh, Mark Williams and Ronnie O'Sullivan, even himself, done it. Uh, uh, the untraditional uh, break of uh, sort of rolling into the Reds. What do you make of that? Yeah. Very odd, isn't it? Even Neil Robertson, and he's one of the most attacking players there are, he started doing it because the standard is so high now and it's very difficult on these tables when you're breaking off to get the cue ball in behind the green or in behind the yellow. And if you don't, you nearly always leave a long red on for your opponent. And I remember speaking to Mark in Milton Keynes just a couple of months ago. He says, he said to me, he says, Dominic, he says, I'm never going to let a player pot a ball off my break again. <laughs> and that's why he's doing it but sometimes if you don't quite get that shot right uh, one of the end reds will just spring out and be possible into the into the centre pocket and one of the players did that I think it was Neil Robertson the first yeah. frame of the evening playing yeah. Kyron a red came out and Kyron knocked it into the left centre made a total clearance of 130 odd that's right so you can still make a mistake oh, you um, yeah, you know. certainty isn't it no, but there are other ways of rolling into the pack of reds, but it does seem to be a problem now, um, especially now here in the semi-final, the one-table setup. It's even harder now to get behind the green and the yellow off the break because the cue ball's really skidding off these cushions. They're really slow, and it's what we call cushion slide. It, the, the, the cue ball, when it hits a cushion, instead of coming off fairly squarely, it skids and it comes off at a really narrow angle. So getting behind the yellow and the green now is nearly impossible on this semi-final table. You can understand why the likes of Mark Williams is doing it. You know, it's to sort of contain from that break-off, which is, you leave one red out now for a lot of these top players, and chances are, uh, if they pot it, they could win the frame. Yeah, I think Mark's decision to do it has been vindicated because, you know, I've seen Neil Robson do it and Mark Allen, um, and I'm sure there's been one or two other players that have tried it out as well. So... It's not just Mark anymore. There's, there are at least three or four players that are breaking off that way. Whether they'll do that next season, I don't know. Yeah. And, and whether Mark will do it next season, I don't know. Let's see. It's going to be interesting to, to see how that goes, uh, Dominic. But just to touch uh, one more second on Ronnie O'Sullivan. Of course, in this year's championship, went out to Anthony McGill. Um, Anthony McGill, yeah. who's been impressing a lot of people, of course, last year's championship. So unlucky to go out in the semi-finals. Um, but, of course, um, Anthony went on to lose then to, to Stuart Bingham. But, uh, Ronnie, do you think the the seven world crowns, how do you think it'll go? Do you think it's a good chance it'll happen? I'd love to think that he'll he'll manage it one day. Um, I was a little bit disappointed for Ronnie that it took so long for him to go to five world crowns to six, which he managed to do last year. It seemed to take ages for that to happen. Um I'd like to think that he can get to seven world titles. And I think, you know, he's got probably three years to do it. And, and I think there's every chance. It's a little 50-50 whether he'll ever get there. But I think if he does, it'll be a fantastic achievement. And then if he did do it, I don't think there'd be any doubt then that, you know, he's probably the greatest player of all time. That's but that's the one record that Stephen Hen Hendry still has over everybody else. I would say it's probably going to keep Ronnie coming back as well and motivated to, to try and uh, match Stephen because deep down I think you know he always maintains Ronnie that he doesn't care about records but I would say you know to be seven times world champion uh, it has a nice ring to it as well. Exactly, I think that you know would mean a great deal to Ronnie as well. Um, so I definitely think he'll be he'll be giving it his best shot for the next few years. Yeah. When you look at this, the standard now, Dominic and Snooker, it's quite scary because when you look at some of the players that have gone out this year, 
in either the first round or second round. Like, for example, uh, Dave Gilbert, really good player. Ali Carter, yeah. out in round one. Ding, out in round one. Gary Wilson, who showed he's a very capable player a few years back, round one. Barry Hopkins, yeah. out in round John Higgins and Ronnie himself, out in round two. It's the best, and I would say as well, Dominic, it's probably one of the most uh, highly talented lineups we've ever had at the Crucible. I think so, yeah. Um, John Higgins in his first match with Tian Peng Fai, well, somehow he won it. I think Tian Peng Fai lost that match rather than um, John Higgins winning it. But he didn't play very well against Mark either. He struggled. It's very hard when you play a very bad first round to just switch it on in round two and just flick a switch and get things you know, motoring along again. And, and John Higgins, although he played a, a little bit better, Mark was just too good for him. Um, but yeah, I think what I've noticed really watching the championships this year is the consistency of the guys that are in the semi-finals. They're just they're they're not having any really bad sessions. If you look at Judd Trump, you know when he when he lost to Sean Murphy, Judd was struggling a little bit in 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 every round that he played. Really, um, he was five four up, I think, on Dave Gilbert at one stage before he started to pull away a little bit, but. One thing that did impress me with Judd, he's a very deceptively difficult player to beat. He looks like, on the face of it, a guy that makes mistakes and you'll get chances against. But he's actually, he's, he's a tighter player than you think he is. He's deceptive in that regard. And although he had a couple of bad sessions, he didn't lose them badly. But, you know, Sean Murphy really did turn it on against him. And um, Sean is struggling a little bit against Kyron. He's 10-6 down at the moment. I just wonder, from Sean's point of view, whether beating Judge Trump was basically his final in a way. I don't know if he's going to overcome the deficit against Kyron. It just seems to be incredibly tough. That's right. Yeah, Kyron, I think, is on a mission after last year's final. And that brings us nicely into this, um, to talk about the second semi-final. Uh, Dominic, of course, uh, Kyron leads 10-6. And Sean won two very important frames uh, there from 10-4 down. Uh, two frames that... I feel in the context of the match was crucial. Absolutely crucial. Because psychologically, when you're 10-6 down, you're four frames behind and your opponent still needs seven frames. The difference, it, it just the way it sounds, 11-5 sounds like a mountain to climb. Six frames behind, you just think to yourself, I just can't, you know, you, you're bound to be in your hotel room if you're 11-5 down thinking... I just don't see how I can possibly win this match. You, you go into the next session, you think the only way I can is to win all for, all the first four frames of the beginning of the next session to make it 11-9. But now he could win the next, he could win 3-1 at the first sort of mini uh, session to go to the interval. And all of a sudden he's 11-9 down and, and he's right in there. And obviously, you know, nearly every session that that's played, you know, somebody's 3-1 ahead, it's, it's a very realistic possibility, and that's what Sean will be focusing on. He's running out of time. I don't think he's playing well enough um, at the moment, but, you know, he's such a capable player. He only needs to start a match well. He's capable of knocking in big break after big break, Sean Murphy did against Judd Trump, and if he can reproduce that form, Kyron will still have a match on his hands, definitely. Oh, Murphy, Sean is definitely a very tenacious uh, player, and um, it's great actually to see him back at this stage of uh, the World Championship, and when he's amongst the balls, Sean as well, he's a joy to watch. He is, you know, he's, he's, he's one of the most beautiful cueists this game's ever had. He's, he's got such a gorgeous rhythm in his cue action, he's so still on the shot. 
He's he's a wonderful player to watch, and he plays these long screwback shots even easier than Judd Trump does, because Sean Sean's um, tip size is under nine millimeters. It's about eight and three quarter millimeters. It's really small, so when he plays these length of the table screwbacks, he gets a terrific amount of backspin on the cue ball effortlessly, and um, you know he's, he's a beautiful curist. He's a great player to watch. He's, I get as much pleasure commentating and watching Sean players or do Ronnie O'Sullivan they're very similar in that regard yeah well they're definitely attacking players the instinct is to attack and think absolutely Sean's always had that but just to allude as well to the lineup of the quarter final lineup that, that was there six out of the eight were former world champions that's yeah that I know just, that just shows you the level of, of uh, where Snooker has gone to and uh, Ding Jun Wee uh, Dominic, you'd, you'd start to wonder every year I have this annual thought in my head that comes with Ding Junhui and it is, will he ever be world champion? He could be running out of time. It might never happen for him. Maybe the format just doesn't suit him. I don't know, but Ding is such a solid player. You'd think he's got every tool in the book you know, that he, he could possibly need to, to be world champion, but some players, if you look at someone like a John Higgins or a Ronnie they can play at sort of 80%. The game sort of comes easy to them. They can they can just roll in a good performance without too much effort. I, I think someone like Ding and maybe Mark Selby, some players have to practice hard to be at their best. And Ding might be one of those. I think Ding, he doesn't have a weakness in, in his game at all. But maybe he's just not an absolutely fantastically consistent scorer like um, somebody like Stuart Bingham or, or Ronnie, John Higgins... Or, or, or somebody like, you've got to say, Kyron Wilson, the way he's playing here. Ding seems to have the odd... Yeah, he's, I wouldn't say he's inconsistent, but he has spells where you can knock in 80, 70, 80, 100, you know, four frames. And then he can have frames where he makes mistakes that he shouldn't make and he struggles to make a 30 or 40 break. And he just has these bad spells in matches. And I don't think he's maybe as strong psychologically as some of the really great players that are still left in this event. Maybe they're just a little better psychologically, which is the reason they're still in. Yeah, I, th- I think that's a fair point, Dominic. And when you look at um, the match against Stuart Bingham, that he went out in the first round, and that, and that was a very tough first-round draw for, for Ding. What a terrible draw. It was only 10-9, and I thought Ding played pretty well in that match. Who knows, if Ding could have got through that, he'd have been playing, I think, Jamie Jones in the next match, and you know, obviously he'd have been a big favourite. And Yeah. Um, who, who knows but I think Ding's a fantastic player I love watching yes, Ding I mean yeah. it, was a, it was only a few seasons ago when he, when he won five ranking events in one season I mean only Judd Trump has bettered that Oh he's certainly a very special player uh, as uh, Ding Yeah Wien, absolutely It would be nice to see him you know um, go to, to win the World Championship but it would be nice to see because it would be great for the game as well And uh, It would be yeah, yeah. And, and I think a lot of the pros would love to see Ding win as well the World Championships because he tries very hard and he's a fantastic technician he's got one of the greatest technique, techniques this, this sport's ever seen he's absolutely like a robot you know when he plays and his cue ball control is fantastic Yeah he is a joy to watch when, when he's in full flow If I had to push you Dominic at the moment, and I know it's not easy uh, to to push you, but if I if I'd ask you who be your tip for the final, if I'd, if I'd ask you who do you think's going to win the World Championship? Oh well, hmm, I'm a little bit surprised with Mark Selby in this current semi final, but if he gets through this match with Stuart Bingham, I'd put him favourite because he's won it three times before, and Kyron's never won the World Championships. 
Uh, oh, it is a tricky one. Sean's won the World Championships, of course, but that was back in 2005. I think Mark Selby would be far too consistent for Sean. Um, if Mark Selby gets through to the final with Kyron, I think Mark Selby will win. I think Mark Selby will beat Stewart in the end, but there's no guarantee because it's all about Mark Selby. If Mark suddenly struggles for some reason or he starts feeling the pressure and making mistakes and he starts losing his confidence, because sometimes, I don't know what it is with Mark Selby, sometimes during a match he can lose a bit of belief and he'll turn a couple of shots down he doesn't normally turn down or he'll take something on and make a bad mistake and he'll look a little bit introspective he'll start sort of thinking inwardly and negatively and analyzing things and and his shot time starts getting slower and slower but oh i am gonna just hedge my bets and i'm gonna say i reckon mark selby will win his fourth world championships that's he's my bet yeah i would actually say i would agree with you in the sense of i I would think along the same lines because if mark selby plays close to the top of his game and that is a a very scary game uh, i think that he will win his fourth world title but yeah, do you, know, do you know Mark Selby? He reminds me a little bit of Novak Djokovic in tennis because I always think with Mark Selby, when he's at his best, nobody beats him. When he's at his absolute best, the way he came back a few years ago and he beat um, Ronnie O'Sullivan, I think he was something like ten five down or something in that final. But when he beat Ronnie O'Sullivan, he was his his standard of play in that evening session was absolutely unbelievable. Yeah, it was the best move I've ever seen. It, it was like watching a machine that just would not break down. No matter what Ronnie did, he just had no answer to what Mark Selby did. And that's why I think, you know, Mark Selby at his best is almost the hardest player in the yeah. game. Well, he's a great match player, every part of his game. Yeah. We saw that today with two, uh, two consecutive uh, consecutive breaks of 134. You that's know. right, yeah. Well, you see, Mark Selby came from a pool background. He's originally a pool player that's and he right. was a former eight-ball pool champion. And a lot of the tactical skills in pool, I think he carries through to the snooker table and he's he's got some very clever shots there's no doubt about it oh he knows his way around the snooker table that's for sure but uh, oh yeah doesn't he yeah interesting choice though uh, Dominic and certainly going to be great viewing over the the weekend and of course Monday to see who will become the 2021 world snooker champion on won't be Mark Selby now said that you know that don't you (laughs) you've jinxed him (laughs) I have I think I have but that's the great thing about sport Dominic nobody knows you know no nobody knows and uh on to your own career now, Dominic, and you're still playing, of course. You're still a, a professional snooker player. You won your first ranking tournament in 1997 when you won the Grand yeah. Prix and you beat John Higgins 9-6 in the final. I did, yeah. I was ranked in the sort of mid-50s at the time. So to get to a final, or anywhere near a final, I was achieving something I'd never got near before. So I, was like a, I really was a fish out of water there. I, did, you know, I remember playing that final. I didn't think about winning. I didn't think about losing. I just didn't want to play John Higgins, who I thought might hammer me and embarrass me because at the time he was world number two. Um, I was just playing snooker to see what would happen. And all of a sudden, I was in a winning position. I ended the afternoon session 5-3 up, I think. Yep. And I ended up sort of 8-6 up and a frame away from victory. And I, I was waiting to feel the pressure or, or I was waiting to sort of start struggling. It never happened. I got stronger and stronger because there was just no pressure on me. You know, I was achieving something I'd never got near achieving before. And for that one particular time, nobody was expecting me to win. And I just carried on doing what I did. And luckily it was good enough. Well, what a man to beat as well, John Higgins. You know, one of the all-time greats and uh, a, yeah. a legend in, our, in, in snooker. 
Absolutely. I think John at the time was about 23 or 24 years old. I was 25, nearly 26, and he was world number two. Uh, you know, to, to be world number two um, in, in the Hendry era and, and all that, and Ronnie and, and uh, Mark Williams and all those guys around at that time, I mean, to be, to be world number two at the age of 23, 24, which John was, uh, was fantastic, you know, incredible. Yeah. Just shows how great a player he is. Oh, he's been around a long time, and of course the following year he was world champion in 1998. Beating Ken Doherty. Yeah. But, um, that's right. Ten years on from your first um, ranking tournament, then you won the Shanghai Masters, Dominic, um, and you beat your, your fellow compatriot, uh, Ryan Day, 10 6. Yeah. And uh, you were you were 6 2 down in that final. Do you know, I've got a funny story about that because I, I used to practice with Ryan all the time in his club in Pontacama, um, near Bridgend. He used to have this great beat. His, his father is a, a building contractor. And he took on this great big place called the Vets, D-E-T-Z, it was spelled. And it was a derelict place. I, I think it used to be some sort of brewery in Oxford Street in Pontacama there. It's a little tiny Welsh village, Nibridgend. Yes. And um, he had all these government grants to, to regenerate it and everything. And it took about a year, a year and a half to sort of build up into this fantastic snooker club and bar and everything. And um, that's where Ryan ended up being based. And for probably three or four years at least, I was practicing with him there. And I remember practicing with Ryan the day before we flew out to Shanghai. And I was I was 6-3 down on the practice table to him and beat him 9-8. <laughs> so we ended up playing in Shanghai. And he's in one half of the draw and I'm near them. We just kept winning. And we ended up playing each other in the final. It was an old man. And I was... Yeah, I was 6-2 down in the afternoon session and I remember making a break in 94, had a chance to get the highest break and I, I messed up with two reds left. Um, but I won that frame for 6-3 then, so we had a, a few hours off before the evening session. And Ryan, come the evening session, I don't know, he played like somebody that was 8-0 down. He, he, he could not pot a ball. He was hitting the, he was playing safety shots and hitting them all wrong. He, he took on a couple of long reds and missed them by miles. He was strangely really nervous. And um, I got in in the first way and I played a really good safety shot and he's left me right in. I've made 143, which was the highest break. And um, so incredibly, you know, I made it 6-4. And, and then after that, he just seemed to struggle and struggle. I don't think Ryan scored more than about 80 points in the whole of the evening session, amazingly. He just folded? A, a little bit. Uh, and I just got stronger and stronger, um, amazingly. And I was, I was just so surprised to, you know, to, to overcome that deficit playing a great player like Ryan, who's just on his day, is devastating with his pot and break building. Oh, yes, a very solid player as well, Ryan Dane. I'm sure, um, Dominic, that you were thinking of that practice session in the final, you were thinking to yourself, this is a good omen here, I'm 6-3 down. <laughs> you know, yeah. you were probably casting your mind back for positive thoughts of, even though it was, it was only a practice session. Yeah, I can't remember whether I actually thought of that at the time or not, or whether I was just quietly going about my business, just trying to overcome this. Yeah, I think I probably was. It's amazing, because when you play a match... You could have all the troubles in the world on your shoulders, but when you're out there playing a match, you forget everything and you just focus on the match. And when the match is done and dusted and you go back to your hotel room, you think of all these other things then. Yeah, that's right. You start thinking. And maybe, you know, when you're in the zone, you start focusing about snooker. Sometimes that it's clear that's, that's when a lot of players are at their best because um, they're purely thinking of their game. That's what, yeah, you know. I think that's what's happening with Kyron, you know, at the moment. He's playing so well. 
when you're playing really well, you get in that zone or in, you're in that sort of bubble, or you're in that sort of cocoon of concentration because you're playing so well. But when you start missing a few balls, it breaks that sort of um, fierce, concentrated bubble that you're in. And I think that's a problem, you know, with Sean Murphy, he's making mistakes, so he's never getting in, in, into the zone. Kyron's like knocking in 100 breaks and 80s and 90s all the time, and he's just in that zone. Oh, now, to, seeing that we're talking about the World Championship, Dominic, um, your own performances at, at the Snooker Worlds, uh, your best performances was uh, 2000 and 2014, where you reached the quarterfinals. Yeah, two quarters the best I've done. Well, I, I don't think, you know, for somebody that's won two majors and, and, and then a shootout and other, a few little things, two quarters in a tournament as big as the world with all of those long, long matches you play, I suppose that's not too bad. If somebody said to me, you know, somebody's won two majors and a couple of other things and they've been to two world quarterfinals, I wouldn't think that's an underachievement necessarily. Um, the slight disappointment is, obviously, I was 11-5 down to Barry Hawkins in 2014. I won seven frames in a row, went 12-11 up. And then he played two fantastic frames. He didn't miss a pot for two frames and beat me 13-12. So I was just one frame away from that semi-final oh, one-table setup. That's unfortunate. But never mind. Yeah. yeah but, but you know, when you're 11-5 down, you can't win the match when you're 11-5 down. You need the other guy to lose, make mistakes, and, that's right. and give you sort of avenues back in. And, and you know, Barry did that. He helped me out a bit. But certainly, you know, two-quarter finals, as you say, nothing to, you know, it's, it's certainly something to be proud of when you consider all that, the, the talent that's in, in, in snooker, uh, Dominic. But are you slightly, when you look back on your snooker career at the moment, and you're still playing, of course, but do you reflect, yeah. do you reflect on maybe, because I know you were saying that uh, before we started the interview that you, you've always had different interests other than sport, other than snooker, sorry. Yeah, that's right. Um I started off, I was in the uh, W Powers Police Headquarters on the police radios and the switchboard as, as a, a, like a junior, I was about 19, but then I'd won the Welsh Amateur Championships and I lost in the final of the World Amateur Championships in Thailand. And then World Snooker, the governing body at the time, the WPBSA, allowed the game to go open whereby you could literally just pay money and be a professional player. But because I had quite a good pedigree in the amateur game, um, I had a local businessman um, that was happy to sponsor me and uh, to turn pro, so he paid all my entry fees and gave me money to live on because the qualifiers were in Blackpool. And we were there for probably three months during the summer months playing match after match in 10 tournaments with about 900 pros. We had to play so many qualifying matches and everything. It was amazing. And the way for home um, for so long, uh, it, it was quite an effort. And John Higgins turned pro the same year as me, as did Mark Williams and Ronnie and, and others as well. And it was uh, it's quite a school. You know, it's very yeah. tough. Definitely a very tough school when you mention all the you know, all-time greats, you know, Dominic. And uh, I suppose, you know, you, you touched as well. In 2007, you moved to, to Vienna and you had no real snooker coach in Vienna. No, I, I had a great club to play in, though. It was called the Kur 15 Reds. Um, KWO with the umlauts. It was um, there were a chain of them in Vienna. There were about five or six of them, and I had one that was literally a five-minute walk from where I lived in Vienna. And uh, it was a great base because the table I played on was an old BCE table, which is what I played on when I first turned pro in in the early nineties. And the pockets were murderously tight on it, so I had a good sort of base there. Um, but obviously, I was commuting from Vienna to to London and then travelling to all the, uh, the qualifiers. But I moved back in 2011 
um, about that time because Barry Hearn took the game over yeah. and we went from sort of eight or nine tournaments a season to sort of 29. So I didn't feel I could live in Europe anymore because I'd be travelling back and forwards all the time every other week nearly for qualifiers or something. So I decided to relocate back into Stroud in Gloucestershire where I live now in the Cotswolds. Yes. So and Barry Hearn, you know, it, it has to be really um, said and I talked about this with David Hendon when I interviewed him as well what he's done for snooker and darts, um, Dominic. Amazing. Uh, Barry Hearn is quite a special guy. I mean, he started off as, a, as an accountant in Dagenham, and then he loved snooker. And he took on Steve Davis in the late 70s, just before he turned pro, because um, he was winning everything in the London area. But, and he also took on the, the chain of leukaemia clubs, which were closing. He, he bought them out and took them all on. Um... And he sort of, he created this club called the Matchroom Club. That's where his name came from, Matchroom Sport. It's to do with snooker. And uh, he's one of Britain's greatest ever sporting entrepreneurs. There's no doubt about it. I mean, he's got a great team behind him. He's got a fabulous company that's, that's done so well for so long. Um, he's just such a clever guy. He sees the potential in something. He invests his money into it and makes it what it what it is, hence, you know, the darts and the snooker, and he's been amazing for the game, there's no doubt about that. Oh, it's amazing what he's done uh, as well, you know, for darts, when you consider uh, Absolutely. It, the, the winner's checks now in snooker and in uh, darts, it's, it's quite uh, amazing, and of course... He's, it's staggering, yeah. I mean, darts, you've got to be, uh, and let's be honest, I mean, darts, when you watch darts on television, it is so incredibly watchable. It's a fantastic sport for television darts, it really is. Yeah, I think actually David made a, made a joke with me, David Hendon, that he said he even made uh, fishing a, a thing to be watched on on TV as well. Barry? Yeah, Fishermania. He started that many, many years ago. Oh, it must have been 20 years ago when he started Fishermania. I mean, I do a lot of course fishing. My, my father's actually um, a second-hand fishing tackle dealer. He's pretty much just about retired from it now. He's in his late 80s. But, you know, so I, I know a lot about antique fishing tackle and stuff. So I love fishing. I see. So it's a love watching Fishermania. Fantastic. Yeah, it just shows you Barry's reached though. He's interested in anything that, you know, he, he just comes from a normal background, Barry, and he loves to promote these, these sports as well to, to the world. And my God, he's done an amazing uh, job of it. And uh, just to talk uh, before we move on, uh, Dominic, we mentioned the Snooker Shootout. Which yeah. is a great fun tournament to snooker shoot out to watch. It's a fantastic viewing, and it was great to see yourself when winning it there in 2014. Yeah, thanks. I mean, it suits my personality. I'm a natural sort of extrovert, and I, you know, I love being centre stage. Even if things aren't going right for me, I don't mind. I just, I'm just happy to be out there, and, and it's an honour that you know that I'm centre stage, and you know, I'm, I'm fortunate. But the shootout certainly. Suited my personality. Obviously, it's almost impossible to win that sort of 10, uh, 10 minute format. You don't even play a frame in most cases, and uh, the, the pressure is absolutely colossal. But when I won it, it was in Blackpool in the Tower Circus. There was a big crowd, they were drinking, they were, they were boisterous, and we had walk on girls walking into the tables and everything. Yeah. It, was, it was like. <laughs> It was razzmatazz for snooker. It was unheard of, it, but you know. And, and of course, it's lost a lot now. There are no walk-on girls anymore. Um, the last year, obviously, it was. Yeah. yeah, well, it's you know, it's just sign of the times. But you know, I was very fortunate to um, to play in such an amazing venue, uh, such as the Blackpool Tower Circus Ballroom there, and uh, the crowds were fantastic, and the music and everything as you walked on, and as I say, the walk-on girls and the stunning dresses and what have you. It was just. It was just an, an unusual thing for Snooky. Never think, would you, that Snooky would have a tournament like that. But no. 
was very, I was very proud to have won it, you know, during those days with the Walk On Girls because it was just such an unusual event. And I've got to be honest, I don't really agree with it being a ranking event. Um, I mean, let's be honest, you don't even play by the official rules of the game of snooker, do you? So it's not necessarily a snooker ranking That's event. Right. It's, yeah. It would come under sort of miscellaneous, well, <laughs> I of, suppose. Of course, you can actually lift the white as well which, uh, and place the white. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, which you can't. You can do in nine ball pool, but you've never been able to do in snooker. Yeah, and who did you beat in the final, Dominic? Can you remember? Well, funny enough, Stuart Bingham. Stuart Bingham. Stuart. I, yeah, I made a sixty odd break, and uh, I should have played a safety shot, but there was a sentry on. I took one risky pot on in the middle pocket and missed it, and I just I got so carried away with the situation, I didn't think clearly, and Stuart actually had about nearly four minutes left to make a sixty or seventy break to beat me. But luckily, you know, the pressure of the situation just got the better of him. He missed a simple pink in the middle pocket, thank goodness, because I might not have won that. Well, well I love uh, I, I love the sort of different scenarios that the shot clock uh, throws into the equation. You know, it brings in that that question of time. And it begs the question, I know a lot of traditionalists out there will say, oh no, there should be no more than one, like the snooker shootout's fine, leave, it, leave the shot clock there. But for me, I, I don't know, I think it could work in other tournaments. I'm not saying um, all, I'm only saying a, a, a small minority. What do you think on that, Dominic? Um, it's been talked about because there are quite a few players on the tour now that are approaching sort of 30 seconds a shot and there are probably half a dozen that you know are slower than that. And even in the World Championships here, there have been a few matches where players are sort of 26, 27, 28 seconds a shot. Um, so even some of the players that are normally 22, 23 seconds a shot in the World Championships here, they've, when they've been struggling and fighting so hard, they've, they've gone right down to sort of 27 seconds a shot. And um, as long as the public don't seem to mind it, and as long as the governing body doesn't think it's harming the popularity of the sport, which it certainly hasn't up till now, I think it's fine. And the other thing is, if you look at who's contesting major tournaments by and large it tends to be the attacking players that get on with it a little bit maybe the world is an exception because every match is such a long match there are all these sessions to play i think the world is a bit of an exception because if you look at neil robertson he's he won the world championships in 2010 but he hasn't got near winning it again that's right um you know he's one of the greatest potters and break builders and scorers this game's ever had and will ever have and he's got one of the best techniques ever. But, you know, this very, very long format, it doesn't suit everybody because the first thing that goes when the pressure's on you is your long game yes. because it's the most exacting part. And if you take that away from Neil, he's, he's, he's beatable. If he starts missing pots, he's, he hasn't maybe got the table craft of a lot of players like a Mark Selby yes. um, or a Stuart Bingham. And maybe, you know, there are a little few things that just cause him to struggle, maybe. Um, you'd have to say that because he, you know, he hasn't won it more than once since 2010. That's true. So you yeah. know, th there must be something in that. The facts back it up, but uh, yeah, it's, it's certainly true that uh, snooker, as it is, is a great game and it, it doesn't really need changing. But it would be interesting to see uh, in the future what will happen uh, regards a shot clock, uh, because uh, I wouldn't be surprised if they introduced it for maybe one or two more tournaments, but keep it predominantly the same for all the. The sort of major tournaments and uh, tournaments around uh, Europe, but uh, no, it's great talking to you about that, Dominic. And of course, when you won Thanks. the snooker shootout as well, you you performed my way. 
Oh, I did, yeah, I remember, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you've got a good voice. Well, do you know, well, thanks. Um, when I was in my 20s, I mean, you see, what happened with me, I always sang in the choir at school, and um, I was sort of a boy soprano, and I was. people thought, well, my school teachers thought I had, you know, the best voice of them all, so I, I'd, I'd always have to sing the solos at the Christmas concerts and things um, as a young kid, a 14, 15-year-old, but... What happened was with me, I got into um, singing a little bit and I was always, I I was always sort of um, fascinated by the vibrato in the voice, that lovely sort of wave, that even wave that singers have. Yes. And, that, and what happened for me was Roy Orbison died in, in 1988 and all his albums were in the charts, number one and two. I'd heard of a few songs, but I didn't realise that Roy Orbison had this operatic tenor vocal range. He could sing a top C, like, you know, operatic tenors. He had the same range. He was tenor. So he used to sing these operatic ballads, and I'd never heard anything like it. And I thought, when my voice breaks, I'll be able to reach all those notes. I didn't know there was, like, a bass and a baritone and a bass baritone and a tenor. All different. Um, Yeah, so what happened with me was I I did an exhibition with Willie Thorne in Port Talbot. And at half-time during the interval, they had, um, I think his name was Neil, there was... um, there was a guy singing um, all these songs at the interval, and he, he, I could tell you could tell when somebody's been trained as a singer. So I asked him because I was I was always thinking about having my voice trained and having um, singing lessons. So I asked him. He said, "Oh, he says, yeah, um, I had my voice trained by um, a guy called Alan Davis from Neath, and he gave me his details. And I've met Alan, and I had lessons with him for about two years, uh, classical singing lessons. And uh, yeah, and because." Um, Alan was a tenor with the Welsh National Opera for 30 years. So, you know, he used to give singing lessons to, to, to um, both male and females. Um, and uh, I had vocal training with him for about two years. The thing with that is, when your voice is trained, it's, it's in an unnatural state. It's like training in the gym with your muscles and all the protein drinks. You must, you know, your body's in an unnatural state. So if you don't keep that up, the technique is always there as a singer, but the voice goes back to a slightly more natural state. The technique says, I say, but the voice goes back to its natural state, you know, unless you keep it up all the time. And obviously I don't, you know. Yeah, but that's interesting that you were, that you give a, a rendition that you, I didn't actually know that you got uh, t- t- coaching on it as well. But uh, yeah, you certainly impressed people with your rendition of My Way, of course, a, a classic song and a great way to. Yeah, well, do you know, the hardest thing there was, I remember asking Andy Goldstein, I said something like, how much do you want me to sing of it? And he said something like, you've got about 30 seconds. So I just, okay where do I start and I thought I worked it all out just very quickly in about two seconds and I just guessed where to start the song from and finish it and it, it, apparently somebody said he timed it perfectly Dominic it's about 29 seconds or something <laughs> so it's it quite a long song if you sing yeah. the whole thing it's about four and a half minutes or something the shot clock king got it right no no surprise there <laughs> but, uh, no, certainly fan- fantastic and uh of course Andy Goldstein as well he's a, a good uh, Man United a fellow United fan like myself Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I have to give him a little mention. I didn't know he was a Man U fan, okay, yeah, good. Yeah, he is, yeah, but uh, no, great memories there, Dominic, of your own career, and uh, I have to say well done to you uh, on winning those Thank two tournaments and the snooker shootout. And uh, we're going to close out this interview with a few questions, uh, Dominic, to test your sport, your snooker knowledge. And uh, it's of the mastermind nature because it's, uh, I'm, I'm guessing snooker would be your specialised topic. 
So, um, well, the Avengers would be my specialised topic see. from the sixties. <laughs> I'm a massive Avengers fan. Snooker, yeah. Well, I'm a billiard historian, but that doesn't include snooker. So let's see how we do. Yeah. So seven questions. I thought with seven, the black ball being the, the maximum point. So I'd ask seven questions to see how you get on. Uh, okay. They probably get more trickier as they go on, but they're nothing crazy. So okay, we'll see. <laughs> yeah. The first question is. Who contested the first Crucible World Final? I thought you said they were easy. Um, <laughs> right. Oh, crikey. That was up in 1977. Oh, gee. I'm going to have a guess. You want both players, right? Yeah. I'm going to guess John Spencer. Correct. And 1977. Oh, would he be Welsh? He's not. He's uh, Canadian. Canadian? Yeah. In that, is there never Cliff Thorburn? Cliff Thorburn. Was it really? Yeah. Actually, no, I thought it might be Ray Reardon, because they, they were great rivals. Yeah, John Spencer uh, beat I was Cliff. six then. Yeah. That doesn't, I was six years old. Oh, I'll get half a point, then. not we, I? We let you away with that one. We'll give you half a point. Uh, I knew it was Spencer. I couldn't think of who played. Yeah. Was it Cliff Thorburn? Cliff wow. Thorburn, yeah. Another great, of course, uh, player, two great players of the game, but uh, John Spencer came out on top. And your second question... In which year did Alex Higgins win his second and last world title? Yeah, who can forget that? I was 10 or 11 years old, 1982. Correct. Yeah, Alex Higgins, the hurricane. Yeah. yeah. A great, An uh, honour to have known him. I knew him quite well. Yeah, so uh, that's uh, interesting in itself, I'd say, Dominic. Yeah, I mean, I, I, when I was a kid watching snooker, Alex, everybody wanted to watch Alex. Um, you know, he just didn't know. He's so flamboyant, but you didn't know what you're going to get from him. He didn't like referees that stood in the wrong place, and oh, he was he was a fascinating player, and he he played all these exciting shots, you know. But um, do you know, he came up with one of the best lines he'll ever hear in his life. He was on the um, steps of some sort of magistrate's court in Bristol when he got banned for 18 months um, for headbutting somebody or, or some infraction of the rules with World Snooker. And this journalist, and I remember him in this sort of raincoat, he came up to Alex and said, um, can you survive without Snooker, Alex? And Alex sort of said, uh, can Snooker survive without me? <laughs> and I thought, what a great line that was. That's the one thing I always remember with Alex. It was a bit of genius, that, just like the man himself. He wasn't far wrong. You know, no, no. He was an inspiration no. to, to many, but Snooker. Badly missed. Yeah. Oh, we all missed Alex when he was banned. You know, when he watched, I was a kid watching TV and I thought, oh, I want, I want to watch Alex. He's great. Oh, such a great player. And of course, that break against Jimmy White as well that everyone talks about. Oh, it's amazing. I know. I mean, let's, I've got to say, I mean, it's such a sign of the times. Some of the balls he knocked in there that wouldn't actually go in the pockets today because the pocket openings on the middles, for instance, today are murder. But. Back then they were a little bit bigger, but that's just how tables were. But that, you know, the charisma that that man had was unbelievable. Oh, and nobody's got... Yeah, because you see, back in those days, everybody earned most of their money on the exhibition circuit. So all these players were just natural showmen. They, they had a good patter with the audience and that, which is, you know, sadly lacking today. There's just too much money in the sport for that, I suppose. Yeah, they were definitely great characters, Dominic. Oh, yeah. Yeah. On to question number three. What year uh, was the biggest winning margin in a Crucible final? What year was it? Right. Well, that would be when Steve Davis beat John Parrott, 18-3. That's correct. Uh, what year was that? Right. That would be 19... 
90... Crikey. Towards the latter end, we'll give you a wee wee, wee clue. Towards the latter end of uh, the 80s. It was 1989. It was indeed. 1989. Yeah. He beat Steve Newby in the first round. I remember that. And it was. It was 1989. Well done. Thank you. Yeah, because John Parrott won it two years later in 91. That's right. And I'm hoping that's an answer to another question, but you never know. (laughs) Killed two birds with one stone. Yeah, exactly, yeah. But, uh, yeah, 18-3, and what a... What a result that was for, for Davis. And that, uh, of course, was the last of his uh, six world titles in 89 when he yeah. beat John Parrott. That's right, yeah, uh, before the Hendry dominance in the early 90s. So you're doing quite well here, uh, Dominic. On to question number four. Apart from Jimmy White, who did Stephen Hendry beat to win his world titles? Right, yeah. Um, oh, how many times did Stephen beat Jimmy, though? Uh, right, so Mark is one. That's correct. Uh, I don't think Stephen beat Ronnie in the world final. No. Um, give you a, I'll give you a clue on one of them. It's uh, 007. Nigel Bond? Correct. 18-9. Yeah. That's beat, right, 18-9. 95. Yep. Yeah. Uh, uh, one, one more. He beat, uh, to, and apart from Jimmy White, uh, the, the, the other person, uh, he beat Williams... Uh, Bond and who else was it Ken it wasn't Ken Ken of course stopped Henry's um, yeah 1812 yeah 97 yeah it was Peter Ebden oh of course it was Peter Ebden yeah of course of course of course of course and and of course Ebden beat um, Stephen Henry one of them correct 2002 yes but no it it was something like about 1814 or something that final it was fairly close as well Uh, Stephen and Peter yeah, I, I think, think it, it was. I t- I'm nearly sure it was a final frame decider. It was a final frame decider. Yeah, um, Peter won that title in 20, uh, 2002, Yeah, two thousand two. Yeah, that was a fight. Yeah, because I remember Peter missing that um, that red. I think it was down the black cushion to force a decider. That's right. Um, or something. And yeah, and it, oh yes, yeah. that's right. Crikey, yeah, great memory. Very yeah. emotional match. Yeah. yeah, God, I watched all that live. Yeah, I remember watching all that live. But not not easy question so far, I suppose, Dominic. Do you know, the amazing thing is, Tony, if I, if you were doing this interview a month after this World Championship, it would all come back to me. But because I'm actually commentating on so many matches during this year's World Championships, it's like I'm soaking so much up during this year's World Championships, it affects your memory for all the others that are going way back. Oh, I'm sure it does, because you've got so much other, you know, things going on at the minute in your head with the current. Yeah. But uh, on to question number five. Uh, how many years after his first world title win did it take John Higgins to win his second world title? Oh, crikey. Um. So he won his first in 98, as we mentioned, beat Ken Doherty. Yeah. But yeah. Where did the second, when did his second win? How many years was it after that? I think it might have been around, you know, I'm going to say... It was actually quite a long time, wasn't it? It was. Um, it wasn't ten years, was it? It was just under ten years. Nine. Nine. Nine years. Nine. I knew it was a long time. Wow, that was a tough question. And usually that was because people were saying about me it was unprecedented that I won my second world ranking event ten years after my first. Yeah. But I, somebody mentioned it was also a long, long time before, you know, between John Higgins winning in world titles. That's right. Nine years. Yeah, there you go. I thought it was ten. It was nine. Right. And, of course, uh, it beat Mark Selby in the final 
and um, he went on then to to win, of course, John Higgins uh, uh, multiple, a few more uh, oh, world titles four, as well. Yeah, four is one in all. Yeah, John. Yeah, so a uh, four. But uh, no, two thousand nine is the correct answer there. Uh, fine. Second last question: Mark Selby's first world title. Which year was it? Yeah, um, two thousand and six. Mark Selby. Yeah. Two thousand and fourteen. Was it? Yeah, two thousand and fourteen, two thousand six. Off the top of my head, I think was Graham Dot. Ah, right, Graham Dot. Yeah, it was. He won it the year after Sean Murphy did. That's correct. Yeah. But Selby yeah, didn't sorry, win. Yes, Selby didn't win until twenty fourteen, and then he won. Oh no! Of course he didn't, because yeah. he's won three. And that, right. that'd be right. He didn't win the next one, but then he won two back-to-back. Mark Selby. Right. Yeah. Jeez, I've forgotten them as well, the but back-to-back ones, yeah. Not not easy to remember, but the final question then, uh, of course, uh, is regarding the winner's check, uh, Dominic. How much yeah. does the winner get for winning the World Snooker Championship? Well, it's half a million pounds now. Correct. That's the correct answer. That's oh, an amazing, amazing that one, price, right? isn't it? Oh, that that is absolutely unbelievable. I mean, to win half a million pounds for one event over seventeen days is is quite incredible, you know. It is. But you know, it's, you know, it's amazing. We I mean, we think that we're uh, doing fantastically well with snooker, but when you think about the money these golfers are earning and tennis players, it's just amazing. And yet, we're so thankful that the living that snooker's provided us. Um, but you know, we're not really a mass. We're a worldwide sport, but snooker, I think, is just too difficult to ever take off in America. It'll always be nine ball pool in America. It is. It's what I call a sort of fast food game. It's fast and it's flowing, and, and every game lasts, you know, two, three, four, five minutes at the most. Um, but yeah, we're very fortunate that snooker's in such a great place. It's 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 bigger now snooker than it's ever been in its history. You know, since Joe Davis won the first world title back in 1927. He beat uh, Tom Dennis in his billiards rooms in Nottingham. Um, You know, just think where we are now. It's absolutely incredible. And Joe Davis would be absolutely thrilled if he was... The demand yeah. started it all off, and he should be he's, he's so proud. He's looking down on, on what's happening at the minute. But Well, he was a fantastic billiards player, and he said to a, a Darlington professional, Willie Smith at the time, who, who lived to a great age himself, he was, eight, he was 86 when he, uh, 96 when he died. He was born in 1887 and died in 1982. And um, he, he, uh, he, Joe Davis said to Willie Smith, a great billiards player, uh, because they used to play the odd game of snooker at the end of a billiards session because you were only allowed to score 750 points in a billiards session of two hours. And if they did it in sort of an hour, 45 minutes, they put the snooker balls up. And Joe Davis thought that the audience were hanging around just to watch a famous snooker at the end. And that's why snooker started. Um, Joe Davis popularized it. And he said to Willie Smith, he said, uh, this is the coming game, Willie. And Willie Smith said to him, he said to Joe Davis, he said, well, he says, the public uh, um, falls in many ways, but they'll not fall for this. Well, well, <laughs> and, Smith, and, and it, exactly, and he said it himself in the interview, he says, no, I was wrong. <laughs> he got it well. You know, so amazing. Well, yeah. well, exactly, you know, but we've got Joe Davis to thank for uh, popularity snooker. Joe Davis, know. yeah, David Hendon touched on, on Joe Davis as well, the, the work that he did. Yeah, yeah he did. won it 15 times. He held it for 20 years, but actually won it 15 times the war years since right. 
Yeah, so Snooker is a lot to be thankful uh, to Joe Davis for. And, uh, just, Absolutely. Just reflecting those questions to do uh, go over our, our exams here, uh, Dominic, on the test. Yeah, see, um, I failed. Well, I think you've done pretty well. We're going to give you the first one. Who contested the first World Final? you got John Spencer, 77. Yeah. So we're going to give you that first one. So uh, that's uh, one out of one. Uh, the second one, of course, you got Alex Higgins, correct? That was 1982. Yeah, no one will forget that, yeah. Yeah. Which year was the biggest winning margin? You got that one right as well. So that's three out of three. Uh, apart from Jimmy White, that one was, I think, wrong. You got that one. Got one. Yeah, 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 yeah. Only got one of those, yeah. I think it was um, Doherty. Uh, I think you predicted that Henry had beaten. Oh, I did. Yeah, that, that's right, yeah. Uh, but, yeah. Uh, three out of four I've in got back. one out of three of them or something. Yeah. yeah, yeah. On to number five. How many years after his first world title uh, did John Higgins win his second? And 2009, we're going to give you that one. So that's four. Oh, that's very kind, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, we're in a, I'm we're in a, a kind, year out there. I'm in a kind mood, uh, Dominic. It's Friday evening. Well, that's very kind <laughs> of you. Thank you. That was a tough one, that, because so, I knew it was a long time, but there wouldn't be many people who would know that. No, it certainly is a tricky one on the spot. And uh, Mark Selby's first word title, of course, got that one wrong. Miles out. Yeah. Jeez, oh, yeah, I should get a minus for that. That was terrible. <laughs> terrible answer, that was. Four out of six. And the final one, you got the check uh, spot on. Uh, yeah, half a million, half a million so, amazing. So five out of seven, that's pretty respectable, Dominic. Well, you were very kind. Yeah. I, I think, yeah. I, I, I give myself four, but you give myself five, so I'm not going to argue that. Thanks, Tony. Oh, we have to. The, yes. the Irish are always generous. Oh, we have to be generous. And uh, <laughs> I have to say, Dominic, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you uh, during this interview, and I'm really thankful and honoured to have uh, shared this conversation with you. Oh, thanks, Tony. I've thoroughly enjoyed it, and I just want to say a big hello to all your fans out there that are going to listen to this podcast, and a big hello to every one of them. Well, you're doing fantastic work with Eurosport, um, Dominic, and I can see on social media, across Twitter and that, that your your uh, your commentary in the commentary box with Eurosport is uh, very respected, actually. Oh, that's very kind. Do you know, I'm not on any form of social media. I even regard WhatsApp as social media. Well, <laughs> you're, you're, you're not missing much to be offered, to be honest with you. Right. Okay. But, but uh, no, it's uh, it is it has its uses indeed for the, for the likes of that. Oh, of for, course it does. Yeah, for Twitter, yeah. now it's great for for sport fans to, to kind of, it is for content. Yeah. And uh, but no, it's it's a lot of people really value the work you're doing and Eurosport. Uh, it's a fantastic team, and as I say, I'd like to wish you all the best for the rest of this championship, and a big thanks for your time during this interview. An absolute pleasure, Tony. Thank you very much indeed. I really enjoyed it. Thanks. Thank you very much, Dominic. Thanks, Tony. Cheers, mate. All the best. So, folks, that rounds up episode number 47 of the Time Out podcast uh, with uh, who my guest was, of course, Dominic Dale, uh, a much-loved snooker player and a great character of the game. Of course, won two ranking tournaments and the snooker shootout. And uh, he's on Eurosport at the moment. Uh, He'll be on tomorrow uh, commentating on the the conclusion of the semi-finals and then, of course, the final on Sunday and Monday. So a big thanks to Dominic for his time. Keep on the lookout for episode number 48, which is coming in, in the coming weeks. Uh, but for me, uh, Tony McGettigan and uh, Dominic Dale, it's uh, all the very best. Uh, take care and goodbye. For more on the Time Out Podcast, visit thetimeoutpodcast.ie. Thanks for listening.